Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin and over the next 90 minutes, we will discuss patient safety and quality improvement one. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to our colleague Phil Dellinger from the United States to get us started. This is Phil Dellinger in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be moderating the patient safety and quality improvement session. Uh, you can uh, put questions uh, into your computer and as moderator I will screen those questions and if there is time available uh, we will answer those questions. Uh, based on speaker availability those questions may be answered uh, at the end of the talk uh, or at the very end of the session, we will have some uh, likely minimal amount of time uh, for questions, so I do encourage you uh, to submit their questions. Our first speaker is uh, Sir Liam Donaldson from the World Health Organization, uh, speaking to us from the United Kingdom, uh, who will give the keynote uh, we're very excited to have uh, this speaker entitled Strategies to Improve Patient Safety. Sir Liam. Thanks, Phil, and hello, everybody. When I was Chief Medical Officer for England, it was my responsibility to produce an annual report focusing on the main health problems of the day. In my 2006 report, I put on the front cover a photograph of a young man sitting on a chair with a below-knee amputation and a prosthetic leg. It was a stark and it was a dramatic image, and it caused consternation at the time. Government reports never had front covers like that. I intended not just to draw attention to the problem of healthcare infection, but also to convey a reality. Convey, convey the reality that our hospitals were harming people as well as curing them, and to convey that the, the reality was in human terms, not statistics. What people saw on that report cover was a real person whose life had been transformed for the worse by unsafe care. He'd gone into hospital for treatment of a minor sports injury, but he was discharged without a leg as a result of a serious infection. His name's Alan Kelly, and I can still remember my conversation with him to this day. He said this, After my operation, the nurses and the specialists rarely wore gloves to examine my wound. This worried me. I didn't like to ask the surgeon to please put on some gloves, and I never saw them wash their hands, never. In my work on patient safety in Britain and with the World Health Organization over the years, I've talked to many victims of harm or family members of someone who's died. I've often felt that they understand the risks of care and their own vulnerability as patients better than those providing the services. I was asked today to talk about patient safety generally, <clears throat> not solely in relation to sepsis. However, the key concepts in patient safety and the broader strategies needed to improve it is directly applicable to sepsis. We can describe the impact of unsafe healthcare in many different ways. We can point to research studies, 
They've shown that between 3% and 25% of all hospital admissions result in an adverse incident, about half potentially avoidable. We can look at the range of different kinds of harm that occur. Patients die unnecessarily or avoidably are injured due to acquired infections, falls, <clears throat> missed and delayed diagnoses, poor clinical management of acute illnesses, pressure sores, mistakes in the administration of medicines or in the conduct of procedures, faulty or misused equipment, inexperienced and incompetent staff. And that's not the end of the list. The amount of each type of harm varies, but overall, the burden has changed little over the last decade. This is despite unprecedented priority given to patient safety in healthcare systems. Little's known about the level of and the nature of harm in primary care. We mainly know about what happens in hospitals. And little's known about low or middle income countries, though more attention is being given to this now. We can look at the way that history repeats itself. Cases of wrong site surgery continuing to occur throughout the world. Look-alike, sound-alike medicines continuing to cause harm year in, year out. Lab results that go missing and are not acted upon. A cascade of harm, like a mighty river rolling on. Or we can look at the experiences of patients. Or we can look at patient safety incident reports. In my research work, I've personally read over 12,000 incident reports. In my view, they're a very rich source of learning. One study I did and published of patient safety-related deaths in the National Health Service here in England found that one-third, one-third of deaths were due to mismanagement of the deteriorating patient. Many cases of sepsis were amongst that it were in that category. The big breakthrough in understanding patient safety over the last decade has been this. There's much greater awareness that the cause of harm is not due usually due to human error per se, but human error in a weak system. That, of course, is a lesson that was learned by other high-risk industry decades ago. The word system seems like a piece of jargon, doesn't it? Well, let's just reflect for a moment on what makes up a system. Within any healthcare service, there are many potential threats to the quality and safety of care provided. Weak infrastructure. If the range and distribution of facilities and equipment and staff is inadequate to provide fair and timely access, then harm is more likely. Poor coordination. If the components of care necessary to meet the needs of patients don't work well together, then a good outcome is threatened. Low resilience. If the defenses in place and the design of processes of care are insufficient to reliably protect against harm, harm, for example, resulting from errors or misused equipment, then patients are at heightened risk. Poor leadership and adverse culture. If the organization or service providing care doesn't have clear goals and a philosophy of care embedded in the values of the organization, then it won't achieve the best standards of safety for its patients. Competence, attitudes, behavior. 
if the care providers lack the appropriate skills to deal with patients, or they're unprofessional in their outlook and actions, or they don't respect other team members, it will likely cost some patients their lives. Suboptimal service performance. If the way that the service is designed, organized, and delivered means that it doesn't manage processes of care to a consistently high standard, then errors that do occur will have a high impact and a much more adverse impact than would otherwise be the case. But if those parts of the system are strong, that there are appropriate resources, highly skilled motivated staff, inspirational leaders, effective coordination mechanisms, well-designed processes and pathways of care, and a hunger always to do better and be centered on patients, then that system will work as an integrated whole and it will drive out harm and it will drive up safety. I was specifically asked to say something about strategies to improve patient safety. My time allocation short, so I'll make one contextual point and then I'll list five action areas in conclusion. The contextual point is this. Improving safety means adopting technical, sometimes technological solutions, but recognizing that they usually have to go hand in hand with addressing the social system within healthcare. In other words, considering how change can be achieved. Sometimes reducing harm is a largely technical matter. For example, at one period of time, deaths in hospitals around the world were occurring because patients were inadvertently being given high doses of potassium during intravenous infusions. Reducing risk there involved locking up in cupboards the strong potassium chloride formulations and only issuing them through special authorization a process design solution to that particular accidental cause of death, if you like to call it that. In contrast, when Peter Ponovost's program reduced harm from catheter-associated bloodstream infection in the state of Michigan, and it was then tried in other places, he emphasized that it wasn't just a case of recommending the bundle of five technical interventions. To be successful, the clinical teams needed to be engaged by local leaders, cultural resistance needed to be addressed, and the organization needed to be developed. In other words, the social system needed to be fertile ground in order to sow the seeds of new practices. Make no mistake, intervention and implementation are two entirely separate but interlinked processes. Reducing harm from sepsis is at the more complex end of the spectrum. It involves technical interventions and compliance with protocols, but it also involves cultural and organizational change driven by high-quality leadership. So returning to the overview of patient safety, here are five action areas that I believe would be transformative. Firstly, shifting the paradigm of clinical practice so that doctors, nurses, and other health professionals don't just care for the patients in front of them, but know how to maintain and strengthen the resilience of their care system to keep their patients safe. Secondly, 
ending the absurdity of a philosophy for our healthcare professionals that we educate them in silos and then expect them to practice effectively in teams. Thirdly, recognizing that patients and families must be involved fully, not just in their own care, but in the planning, design, and governance of care more generally. Fourthly, standardizing many more of the high-risk processes of care in healthcare. And fifthly and finally, making much better data available to frontline staff, increasing their data literacy, and building up the artificial intelligence systems that will allow them to gain better insight on the sources of risk. The current risks of healthcare are unacceptably high. The patients of the world deserve and should expect better. Change has to happen, but people usually fear change. So what should we fear most? What we should really fear is the servants of the status quo. There are far too many of them out there. Thank you very much, uh, Sir Liam, and uh, we do have uh, time. I appreciate your how compact and informative your talk was. Um, the uh, first question uh, relates to the partitioning of quality and uh, safety. Um, I've thought about this myself before. Um, to, we talk about quality of care and we talk about patient safety. Uh, how much of quality is built around patient safety? Um, I know with grants before, uh, with grants that are patient safety grants, often uh, they end up being uh, submissions built around uh, quality of care. But how do you partition the, the use of quality of care and patient safety? Well, I mean, I've obviously thought about this a lot as well, and I'll try and keep my answer very brief because it's a very good question and a very big subject. The first thing to say is that regarding safety as a subset of quality, which some people do, is uh, too simplistic. Um, quality and quality improvement and quality assurances of much longer standing in healthcare thinking and research and policy making than safety. But it has its own set of concepts and methods. Safety, patient safety, comes much more from the area of accident, understanding accidents and accident prevention where we're greatly informed by the literature from other fields. Now I think in due course there may be a way of creating a theory of everything that brings those two together. But at the moment I think it's too mind-boggling for most people, particularly for frontline practitioners and local leaders. We need programs of quality and quality improvement. We need programs of reducing risk and preventing harm. And I think probably the way through this ultimately is to build the understanding and definitions around outcome. If the outcome of, is harm, then harm can be caused by the error coming out of the blue, but it can also be caused 
by the suboptimal delivery of a diabetic service where people are not getting their blood glucose controlled properly and they're developing blindness and leg ulcers, which is a form of harm. So I think it's much easier to think of the two in a holistic way when you, when you focus on harm. When you simply talk about what is quality and what is safety, you come up into territory which have different traditions and different concepts. Excellent. Um, I'm going to squeeze in one more quick one, and I'm hoping for a real, real quick answer. Uh, yep. Do you think we'll ever conquer hand-washing before being the patient, and if so, how? Well, the places that have done it, um, particularly the Geneva University Hospital in Switzerland, have worked very, very, very hard on it. And um, uh, I think... Uh, Probably it's still the minority of institutions that have very, very high levels of compliance. Um, it isn't a habit. It isn't a ritual. It's something that people have to add on to their normal clinical behavior. And until it, until it becomes a ritual, uh, more like brush, brushing your teeth than flossing your teeth, then it's not going to happen. It requires exceptional commitment and leadership to keep it at the front of people's minds. Sir Liam, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to move on now to our next speaker. Um, Mitchell Levy from the U.S. Uh, will be talking to us about the contribution of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Mitchell. Thanks, Phil. Uh, I'm honored to be here in this first World Sepsis Congress, and I, I want to start by acknowledging the uh, remarkable exertion of Conrad Reinhardt and Marvin Zick in putting together this two-day conference on sepsis. So I uh, am excited to present the contribution of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Over the next 15 minutes, I'm going to talk about some of the uh, processes and methodology we use in the campaign. And I think it's, uh, it's fitting that I follow Sir Lyon because I actually think in the campaign we used almost all of the five steps that he identified as the keys to uh, patient safety and quality improvement. So um, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, let's see, I, I want to talk first about the initial impetus for the campaign. And I think you can see here that uh, what started the campaign was in the early 2000s, there were a number of uh, positive randomized controlled trials, albeit some of them single center, for steroids, activated protein C, early goal-directed therapy, and some of the ARPNET data that were published in either New England Journal or in JAMA that all were associated with about a 10 to 15% absolute risk reduction for mortality. And so we created the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, and I also want to acknowledge that the key uh, founding members of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign include my uh, chair, uh, Phil Dellinger, from uh, Cooper University in Camden, New Jersey, along with Graham Ramsey from uh, Great Britain. And uh, what we set out to do was, having established the need to facilitate knowledge transfer, there were three phases. And uh, the first phase was, the second phase after establishing the need, was to look at uh, whether we could uh, try to understand the difficulty in knowledge translation altogether. And you see here uh, one of the slides which really looks at the difference between what we think we do and what we actually do. And I think that's one of the challenges in patient safety, that we think we're delivering a certain care at the bedside, and it turns out 
when we really measure and audit and then report our behavior, it's often something entirely different. And this is a slide uh, from a, a manuscript that was produced by Conrad Reithart's team and was published in 2006 <clears throat> that looked at the difference between asking intensivists, what do you do, how frequently do you deliver lung protective strategies versus an audit in the actual practice? And you can see here, 92% of the respondents said they frequently or always provide lung protective strategies when after audit, it was found that it was only 4% of the time when that strategy was actually being delivered. And it was on the basis of that that we created in 2002 the Barcelona Declaration that said that we hoped to reduce mortality and sepsis by 25% over five years. We then set out to create a set of evidence-based guidelines. We first published the first set of guidelines in 2004, the second set in 2008, the third set in 2012, and there we're about to publish the fourth set, the third revision of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines in uh, early 2017, they'll be the 2016 guidelines. They are currently sponsored by over 35 critical care and infectious disease societies globally. And, and what, what followed was an initiative for implementation and education that I think set the tone for many of the sepsis initiatives to follow and really utilized a lot of the approaches that Sir Liam identified in his first talk. We set out to collaborate with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and develop change bundles. And the process for change bundles that you can see on this slide was to set out a series of elements that would be easy to measure and linked by time. And we created two bundles uh, that many people know that have changed over time, but these are the two bundles that we use to reduce sepsis mortality and create a, a global performance initiative. And I'm not going to spend too much time in the interest of my limited time on each of the bundles, other than to say that at that time, there was a six-hour and a 24-hour bundle. The methodology we used in the campaign was a global <coughs> multi-center seven-year trial that involved hospital networks across three continents in North America, Europe, and Latin America, and the primary outcome of which was to use these two bundles to change clinical behavior, and the secondary outcome was whether or not the change in clinical behavior would lead to a change in survival for these vulnerable patients with, at that time, severe sepsis and septic shock. We used national, regional, and network launch meetings where we identified local champions uh, introduced the bundles, we developed educational tools, created an interactive website that survives to this day called Sepsis Groups, and most important, <coughs> we provided monitoring of the compliance with the process measures and audit for individual hospitals on how, they, how well they were doing on compliance. So this, what you see here is the report of the 30,000 patients that were entered into the Surviving Sepsis Campaign database over seven years of the study. Um, and what I want to sh show you is the impact of participation in the campaign, 
the impact of duration of how long people participated and <clears throat> the dose effect, which is the difference between high compliance and low compliance. So what we see here is just the difference in mortality from the beginning of the campaign to the end of the campaign, 36% in the beginning at the first quarter down to 25% in the final quarter, and that's a 27% <coughs> excuse me, relative risk reduction in mortality, and that was statistically significant, and that was severity adjusted over the course of the five- to seven-year study. In terms of the duration, what we were also able to show, and this is very important, because it says that the longer you apply these performance improvement efforts, the better you do. We were able to show a 1% reduction in hospital mortality for every quarter that a site participated, and that was all statistically, also statistically significant. So the longer a site participated, the greater the associated mortality reduction. In addition, there was a dose effect. And you can see here on this next slide the difference between high mortality rates in high-compliance hospitals versus low-compliance hospitals. You can see here a 5% reduction in addition to the reduction from just participating in the campaign in high-compliance hospitals. And that was identified by looking at the median compliance with all elements across hospitals. That above that median was identified as high-compliance hospitals versus low. And we were able to show that the better you do at being compliant with these sepsis safety measures, the steeper your decline in associated mortality. And in this case, independent of whether it was in the emergency department or on the wards or in the intensive care unit, there was a 5% statistically significant reduction in mortality in the high compliance versus low compliance hospitals. So the more recent data uh, has driven us to revise the bundles, obviously process, promise, and arise which showed us that we don't need to mandate uh, central lines in every patient in the emergency department with severe sepsis or septic shock, nor do we need to mandate measurements of central venous pressure or central venous oxygen saturation or in, uh, inferior vena cava ultrasound or any of the other measures of hemodynamics. Therefore, we change the bundles now to a three-hour and a six-hour bundle the three-hour bundle is lactate, obtaining blood cultures, broad-spectrum antibiotics, and giving 30 cc's per kilogram of crystalloid. And the six-hour bundle is using vasopressors to maintain a mean arterial pressure of greater than 65 millimeters of mercury and using any one of several measures to monitor hemodynamics to ensure that you have a measure of adequacy of tissue perfusion, including a repeated lactate measure. So finally, I want to end by showing a little bit of this is the real impact of the surviving sepsis campaign, especially in the United States. CMS is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and that is that funds about 60% of the healthcare in the United States. And in fact, as of October 2015, the United States government has federally mandated public reporting with the core measures of the two, three, the two bundles I just mentioned, 
the three-hour and the six-hour bundle. And in fact, in one of the states of the United States, New York State, that mandated public reporting started two years ago in 2014, and they now have a, over 100,000 patients reported in their database that's being prepared for analysis. So I think you can see that the data that we collected over five to seven years in the surviving sepsis campaign, at least in the United States, has, a, has had a dramatic impact on individual hospital networks and now nationally in that there is mandated public reporting of compliance with these performance measures. So in conclusion, I would say there is clearly wide variation in clinical behavior and practice, sepsis. There is uh, also really good data now that show that adherence to performance metrics developed from sepsis guidelines are associated with reduced mortality. There's no question, and Sir Liam alluded to this, that standardizing practice with performance metrics can change clinical practice for the better. And finally, it's very clear in the United States and also in the UK, as I think you're about to hear, that regulatory agencies are moving to mandate public reporting of adherence to metrics and se uh, in order to repo report sepsis mortality. So with that, I'll say thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mitchell. Um, where, where do you think the surviving sepsis campaign, uh, where will the future be? Um, the performance improvement in the U.S. Uh, is now uh, uh, hospital resources are devoted to the CMS measures from a performance improvement standpoint, uh, while the rest of the world uh, doesn't have uh, a similar situation. Uh, other than the guidelines, uh, what do you think the uh, mission of the surviving sepsis campaign will be? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I actually think that the major mission now will be switching to an educational mission. I think that um, because there are, there are now over 60 publications in the literature demonstrating improved survival with measures, and I think what the role the campaign will play is to uh, offer hospitals globally a how-to guide of how to implement strategies that will allow hospitals to be compliant with sepsis measures and improve survival for their patients. Yeah. And uh, I have a question here about uh, you, you showed, how do you feel that the, in the developing world uh, where uh, some of these measures are not applicable, uh, what do you see the role of performance improvement being? Well, I, that's a great question. First of all, there is a, uh, a global initiative headed by Martin Dunser and um, uh, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Chris Farmer, to uh, bring the sepsis measures to the developing world. But I also think it's early identification, being alert for uh, sepsis patients who are infected, who are developing organ dysfunction, uh, administering antibiotics, whatever is available regionally, and whatever fluids are available to administering those as quickly as possible. So my sense is even if you uh, don't have a culture that can have the, has the resources to measure lactate, early antibiotics and some kind of fluid administration is still possible in most cultures, but the most important thing is early identification. 
That sounds great. Um, in the interest of uh, staying just a little bit over on time, uh, we're going to proceed on. Uh, our next speaker is Ron Daniels from the United Kingdom, who will tell us about the United Kingdom Sepsis Trust success to reduce sepsis deaths. Hello, my name is Ron Daniels. I'm an intensivist in Birmingham in the UK. I'm chief executive of the UK Sepsis Trust and of the Global Sepsis Alliance, two organisations fighting to improve outcomes from sepsis. So I'm going to tell you about what we've been doing in the UK, which has involved engaging the health professions, engaging the public and engaging the government, and how those three aspects working together have started to allow us to change policy in the UK to hopefully continue to drive outcomes. I'm also going to share how I believe it's absolutely vital that we remember that this is about people. This is about surviving or not surviving. This is about the sequelae of sepsis. I'm going to tell you about Jem, the gentleman there on the left. He was 37 years old when he died on my intensive care unit. And like most of you will have encountered when dealing with people with critical illness, the system had failed Jem both in the community, where general practitioners hadn't satisfactorily assessed him when he was deteriorating, and in my hospital. The paramedics had also not conveyed him to hospital when they first assessed him. And we question whether had one of those opportunities to rescue Jem been taken, whether he'd still be here today. But I had to tell Karen that her fit, strong husband wasn't coming home, and she had to go home and tell Tom and Emily that Daddy wasn't coming home. Jem is one of an estimated 44,000 people who die every year from sepsis in the United Kingdom. And that figure is demonstrated in this slide here of, of Premiership Football Stadium. So sepsis claims more lives we conservatively estimate than bowel cancer and breast cancer and prostate cancer and road traffic accidents and HIV and AIDS put together. The human burden of sepsis is enormous and we believe that many of these deaths are in fact preventable. Now we accept that some of these deaths... So how have we engaged the health professions in this process? Well, this has been going on for the last 11 years or so. We have worked with the Royal Colleges, statutory bodies like NHS England, statutory bodies like Health Education England and Public Health England. We have had to face conflict and resolve conflict and conflict resolution is a huge part of this you will be aware of the International Consensus Task Force on Sepsis Definitions, which published in February of this year. An immediate conflict was provided by the NICE clinical guideline from our National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, which was published in July of this year. The strategies for recognition within the NICE guideline did not match the change in SOFA score strategy or indeed the quick SOFA score strategy that the International Sepsis Definitions Task Force had proposed in Sepsis 3. Now, we all recognise that the Sepsis 2 definitions were somewhat clumsy. We knew that there was an, inter an interplay between the reliance on laboratory-based investigations to confirm the presence of sepsis and the fact that we often failed to review patients in a timely fashion with those laboratory results in a busy emergency department or on a busy ward. So we knew that sepsis 2 wasn't working, and this was the case not only in the UK, but in many countries. What we did is we worked with the professions. We worked with the Royal Colleges, we worked with NHS England to propose this system of red flag sepsis. So if any one of those seven criteria there were present, we would use that as a surrogate for a formal official identification of sepsis according to the sepsis 2 definition. 
Now, of course, Mervyn Singer and his team have come in and proposed a change in SOFA score as the official definition, but one of those four red criteria with slightly different thresholds. Now, they'll tell you there's three criteria in quick SOFA, but if you look at the online uh, figures, it appears that lactate was also highly predictive of adverse outcome. And if two of those criteria are present, that was predictive of adverse outcome. Now, bringing together these two tools, bringing together quick sofa where we could, bringing together the NICE clinical guideline, which proposed a very different strategy based upon red flag sepsis, we have been able to create a whole raft of algorithms for general practice, for pre-hospital services, for community residential facilities, for community carers, and of course for emergency departments and inpatient wards in hospitals. We've been able to build this into applications that work at the moment on tablets, but will soon be working on smartphones, where we take the health professional through the journey. Does the patient look sick or is their news elevated? Is it an infection? And then if it is, is there a red flag present? We've built it into GP informatics systems. This is one example. Our GPs use one of three electronic informatics solutions. This happens to be EMIS, but all three are representing the NICE clinical guideline. Consider a sick patient assessment, recommend a sick patient screen in a graded assertiveness uh, fashion, and if then there is a suspicion of red flag sepsis, or indeed of the secondary amber flag sepsis criteria, then it drives the GP towards a specific action. We have worked to engage the professions through dissemination, through the creation of the sepsis 6 pathway, a simple solution. This was six aspects of care based in some evidence with items two to five being rooted in the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, of course. We've modified high flow oxygen to give oxygen to targeted saturations and also encourage people to measure urine output. And the sepsis 6 has spread like wildfire. It's in 95% of British hospitals. To our knowledge, it's in use in 14 other countries. Why? Because it's simple. Because perhaps because it's got a cheesy name, but I think it's a simplicity that's key. It's the fact that the sepsis 6 empowers junior health professionals in a busy, conflicted environment to deliver change. We've asked health professionals whether they're sepsis savvy, whether they have the knowledge, the savoir-faire around sepsis so that they truly understand their role in driving it. But to help them, we've had to engage Her Majesty's government in the UK. And that's taken us four years of concerted lobbying of well over 150 letters written to ministers. And here's my sort of nine steps of how we've achieved that. We've achieved that by starting with very clear aims. We've achieved it by partnering with experts such as NHS England, such as independent experts like our ombudsman for the government. We've achieved it by being very clear and very focused with those initial aims, but by allowing them to change gradually over time to evolve as the landscape and the clinical landscape has changed and has evolved. And those are possibly the two most important aspects. Data is important and data, as in most countries, is slightly flawed in terms of the prevalence of sepsis and the incidence of sepsis. We have a hospital episode statistics data, which are episodes rather than patients, and the last available year at the time of this slide were 123,000 episodes in England, which suggests to us that extrapolated across the United Kingdom, there are 150,000 episodes. We've had to respectfully challenge the status quo, and these slides highlight uh, 
letters we've written to ministers in which we respectfully challenge their responses. And I've already said there have been 150,000, uh, sorry, over 150 of these letters written from 2012, where we had our old branding and our old logo, gradually changing ministers' viewpoints as we've moved forward. It took us a while, for example, to identify whether there was one health minister minister responsible for all matters associated with sepsis. They were unclear. We met with several different ministers until we got the Secretary of State, the, the Minister of Health, Prime Minister, to respond. We've had to use allies in power. Allies in power have included ministers from other departments, have included former cabinet ministers from other departments, have included members of the House of Lords in addition to the House of Commons. And we've, through this, lobbied shamelessly. Now, lobbying hasn't happened by accident. We've had three separate parliamentary receptions on the terrace of the House of Commons. We've had three separate reports by the all-party parliamentary group on sepsis, each with a different theme. We've influenced through partnership with experts. We've partnered not only with the Royal Colleges, but as I've mentioned, with the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman, who examines the government's response and with NHS England. We've had to understand political instruments, like the use of select committee hearings in the UK, which are incredibly powerful. This lady's hearing was unrelated to sepsis, but the select committee hearing has helped us to get NHS England mandated by the Secretary of State and Public Health England mandated by this man, the Secretary of State for Health in England. He has been on public record saying things that politicians say, which you can't hold them to account over. Sepsis is a condition whose time has come. Now is the time not for words, but for practical action. But also things we can hold him to account, like the same muscle and effort should be put into sepsis as for meningitis, MRSA and C. diff. For muscle and effort, I read finances. And we are working with the government to drive significant investment in sepsis. We are now working to engage the public. And Case studies and stories help us enormously in this. This is a young man called William Mead who died before he was two, just before Christmas, following a similar story to Gems. Multiple approaches to healthcare, multiple opportunities to rescue him, frequently observations not being taken, safety netting advice not being given to parents. We've had to work with critical partners, like this is one of our national tabloid newspapers that's our most highly read newspaper in the country. And the Daily Mail there, you can see, is campaigning to end the sepsis scandal. We've had to work with television channels to heighten awareness. This is one of our breakfast news programmes called Good Morning Britain. There's also the BBC Breakfast News. And we've worked with case studies to get into those avenues. We have finally persuaded the Secretary of State to invest in a public awareness campaign. And it's going to look something like this. We're going to empower members of our public to just ask, could it be sepsis? So it's empowering. It's linked to safety netting resources. It's linked to symptomatology. So the context is we have a loved one who's got an infection, feels unwell and starts to deteriorate. Members of the public are signposted to the symptoms and they are encouraged to ask of health professionals, could it be sepsis? Now, investment in this is relatively low. It's well under half a million euros a year. So it's not going to allow us to advertise on television, to advertise on billboards, on motorways, etc., what we can do, though, as a charity, is to reach out to our corporate partners, national banks, national um, utilities companies, power companies. We're going to be working with to disseminate this messaging in their written communications and in their online communications. And this is about filling gaps. 
We can communicate on a broad scale to parents using existing resources. This is the child personal health record, a red book that's given to every parent. And working with Public Health England and the Secretary of State, we've ensured that the safety netting resources and this guidance for parents will be going into the child's red book up and down the country. So it can act there. Although it's designed as a safety net, it can act there as a reference guide. So parents become aware of the term sepsis and know what to do if they recognise that their child's deteriorating. So this is the reference guide for children. This is the safety netting resource for adults. Simple symptoms that they can recognise. So just to reinforce that if we get all of this right, if we heighten public awareness, we are likely to achieve significant saving of lives. And it's very powerful to say to the government that we estimate that we're going to save an additional 14,000 lives every year in the UK alone. Internationally, we estimate that we can save a minimum of another million lives every year just by getting the basics right. So this is about awareness. This is about communication. This is about government support, policy to drive change, as well as about engaging health professionals. So that's my time up. If anyone wants to speak to me, they can happily email me at ron at sepsistrust.org. The website address is written there. If you want advice on whether a charitable vehicle is the right vehicle for your organisation, then do feel free to ask. I'll finish now, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ron. Um, so what about... Uh, the prevention of severe sepsis, I, that's sort of an, it overlaps somewhat with the, what we're doing with the lay public education, but there has not been a lot of uh, emphasis, at least on the healthcare side, on preventing severe sepsis. Yeah, so prevention, of course, you know, it's important that we ensure there's adequate access to vaccination programs, particularly for the pneumococcal, for haemophilus, for influenza, particularly for at-risk groups. And there's, there's a way we can go to prevent that. I, obviously, we can also prevent through education. We can prevent through hand hygiene measures. We can prevent through uh, surgical site infection bundles and so on. But for me, a big part of prevention is not so much about preventing the syndrome from initiating, but about the early recognition, the heightened awareness. Mitchell talks about early recognition. For me, of course, early recognition is about not having the patient sitting in their home wondering whether they should call for an ambulance or call for a general practitioner or not. So for me, prevention is about engaging the public. It's about bringing them on the journey, and it's about ensuring that they present to healthcare quickly so that we can intervene rapidly. Thank you, Ryan. Um, we're going to move on, but uh, before, I, before we do, I did want to address one question it came in. It's a, a broad question that wasn't targeting any specific uh, speaker. Uh, it says, we just had sepsis definitions task force that focused on science and statistics, but didn't consider impact of promoting a new definition on safety and quality campaigns. Uh, you know, how do we stop that from happening again? Um, I agree uh, that the, the proposed uh, new definitions uh, were created 
I think they uh, certainly targeted uh, trying to standardize the language across all players, uh, but did not have a, a specific uh, quality consideration and how they might influence or be used for quality campaigns. Um, using the U.S. Yeah. as an example, um, the you know had the uh, the government, the CMS, been at the table uh, for the definition development. Uh, as well as the coders, the ICD-10, which is applicable for the whole world, uh, there would have been some consideration in that uh, final product. Uh, but it's certainly something that needs to be addressed uh, before the next definitions consensus conference. We're going to move on now uh, to our final uh, speaker. Uh, this speaker uh, from the uh, World Health Organization, uh, Professor Souza, will talk to us uh, from Switzerland and address the WHO Maternal and Newborn Sepsis Initiative. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, and uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening for you that are listening. And I would like to, to start by thanking the organizers for the invitation and for the opportunity to present to you the Global Maternal and Newborn Initiative. In the last 15 years, the world has seen an unprecedented reduction of child and maternal mortality. And building on the successes of the Millennium Development Goals, the international community and the world leaders have proposed a new set of goals for the world. These goals are named the Sustainable Development Goals, which has in the center of it health-related goals. And as part of these goals that will last for the next 15 years, the further reduction of maternal and newborn mortality are essential. In this context, ending avoidable maternal and newborn deaths is a priority for, using, for achieving the sustainable development goals. Infections are the underlying cause of 11% of maternal deaths, 25% of newborn deaths, and a significant contributor to many deaths attributed to other conditions. In numbers, this can amount to over 150,000 maternal deaths per year. WHO and other key stakeholders have proposed a global initiative to accelerate the reduction of preventable maternal and newborn deaths due to sepsis. This initiative has four initial objectives that include raising awareness about maternal and newborn sepsis among healthcare providers 
policymakers and the public. Building on previous efforts, previous awareness campaigns, but trying to also reach those that live in the most distant places in the less developed corners of this planet. We also want to assess the burden and the management of maternal and newborn sepsis at a global scale through a global survey that will be put in place next year. And in connection to that, we are intending and working for the development and testing of effective strategies to prevent, detect, and successfully manage maternal and newborn sepsis. Creating versions of the surviving sepsis campaign or even bundles to address sepsis adapted to the reality of the developing countries. With four priority areas of working, particularly strengthening health programs, research development, and uh, generating evidence for reducing sepsis uh, mortality among mothers and children, fostering innovation, and joining efforts to global advocacy, uh, the Global Maternal and Newborn Sepsis Initiative has been proposed and is being launched this year. And one of the first steps of this um, um, action has been uh, the development of uh, a proper definition for maternal sepsis, that is standardizing the definition of maternal sepsis and bring it in line with the current understanding of sepsis in adult population. Currently, there are, there are a number of definitions related to sepsis that are applicable and used in different ways uh, to describe the phenomenon of sepsis uh, related to pregnancy and childbirth. But through this effort, WHO has uh, been proposing a definition that is uh, in line with the most recent um, and definition proposed by the, the, the recent consensus. And also, we are trying to learn with the lessons of the, the new definition, the applicability of the, the new definition. Maternal sepsis is being now understood as a life-threatening condition defined as an organ dysfunction resulting from infection during pregnancy, childbirth, post-abortion or postpartum period. And in addition to the previous work, the definition, the recent WHO guidelines on sepsis uh, and infection management, uh, we are preparing for next year uh, the 2017 Ending Maternal and Newborn Sepsis Week, which is an awareness campaign that will culminate in the week of September 13, 2017, uh, around the 2017 World Sepsis Day. During that week, WHO and its partners around the world will organize a massive and coordinated data collection effort that will take place to assess the burden and the current management of maternal and newborn sepsis in hundreds of health facilities around the world. 
That effort will be followed by the implementation of other specific projects and programs targeting the prevention and successful management of maternal and newborn sepsis. In 2017, during that week, WHO and, and, and its partners will implement the global survey on maternal and newborn sepsis a survey that will be con conducted in health facilities using the medical records as data sources. The goal is to implement this survey in 100 countries, including developed and developing countries. In each country, at least one geographical area, inhabited by approximately 1 million inhabitants, will take part of this study. And each of these geographical areas, all maternity hospitals and all health facilities where women with pregnancy complications could be admitted will participate. And the idea is that during that week, data collectors will look for women admitted to health in the health facilities with signs of infection during pregnancy or childbirth or during the postpartum or post-abortion period. The eligible women and their newborn infants will be followed up until hospital discharge, transferred to another health facility, or death. And we will collect that information about characteristics of the, the women, the management of the infection, and the maternal and newborn outcomes um, around uh, this uh, occurrence. A number of objectives will be uh, aimed through this effort, including the validation of the maternal sepsis definition and development of sets of identification criteria for maternal sepsis. Also, we want to assess the frequency and the outcomes of maternal sepsis in this large network of uh, health facilities involved in large number of countries. Assess the use of effective practices determine the frequency in the characteristics of early neonatal sepsis, and also contribute to raising awareness about maternal and newborn sepsis among health providers, policymakers, and the general public, including pregnant women, mothers, and their families. I'm here today to present this uh, initiative to the audience, but more than it, I would like to invite all of you researchers, health providers, and health facilities around the world to join the Global Maternal and Newborn Sepsis Initiatives, particularly in true, in true, true ways, participating in the 2017 awareness campaign and becoming a focal point for the Global Survey on Maternal and Newborn Sepsis. If you are interested, please feel free to contact me or my colleague Mercedes Bonet at the World Health Organization at the following emails, sozaj at who.int or bonetm at who.int. I would like to thank you all for the attention. I'm happy to take questions, and thank you once again for the opportunity. Thank you very much, General Paul. Um, what... You know, I have a, we're, we're about out of time, but uh, so I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative and uh, could you pick 
a couple of things uh, that are important in the developing countries that maybe are not an issue in the developed countries that you think would make the biggest difference in improving outcome in either prevention or treatment of maternal sepsis? Um, sure, of course. Uh, I think that the main issues uh, that we need to, to deal with is first to accept that we are uh, have to dealing with some constraints in terms of uh, laboratory exams and even the ability for us to implement um, optimal management. But essentially, as uh, Rom has already um, mentioned, the, the most important thing is to think about sepsis and uh, implement the early treatment. And we are actually working in one of the versions of this, uh, the bundles of care with our colleagues from the University of Birmingham in the UK uh, in the SAS-M approach that includes fluids, antibiotics, source control, transport, and monitoring. And on purpose, we are uh, leaving out or the secondary role, the use of, uh, for instance, the cultures or even uh, central uh, uh, lines and lactate assessment. These are all being uh, worked and developed to have uh, bedside and accessible uh, tests. But for the time being, the emphasis has been put in the development of uh, robust identification criteria and strategies to promote early treatment. There's a, I don't think this one is particularly uh, uh, pertinent. Someone talked about how we had managed to get pretty much all the, the world organizations that uh, deal with uh, education and treatment of sepsis together to create the guidelines, but there is very little standardization on uh, signs of sepsis uh, worldwide that are pertinent for the lay public and would it be feasible to try to get a group to come together and put a lot of thought into what the best thing is to tell the lay public, um, you know, maybe the World Health Organization is the group to do that. Do you have any thoughts? Sure, I, I can make a very positive response to that. I. Um uh, I didn't get the chance in the presentation to talk about my role as the WHO's patient safety envoy. And um, we've been running a patient safety program now for 15 years. I did chair that when I was chief medical officer in the UK. And um, we've had a set up a number of important programs, strands to this program of uh, WHO patient safety, but one was that from the word go, we set up a, a, a group of patients for patient safety, patient champions from all over the world, um, and uh, over 200 now working with us. So um, they, I think, would be a very good group to discuss because one of the one of the big challenges that has emerged during some of the earlier discussion is how to get an approach that spans high, middle, and low-income countries because the problems, as you pointed out earlier, will be very, very different in the different um, 
uh, types of uh, environment. And this group does span all of those uh, three groups of countries. So I think um, uh, WHO patient safety team got an approach to take an initiative there, and I think they'd be delighted to work with you. Excellent. Um, I have a, another question here. I think this is uh, would be for uh, Joe Apollo. Uh, the Global Maternity and Newborn Sepsis Initiative participate in the 2017 awareness campaign. What is the exact time, the date, and month? Yeah, thank you for, for the question. We uh, are now developing the, the protocols and the resources for uh, implementing the, the campaign. And the idea is that uh, during, specifically during the week, one week around the World Sepsis Day in 2017, we will do this um, very large mobilization. So we are talking about about one year from now. And, uh, of course, we will, in about uh, three weeks, have uh, a, a meeting, a global meeting, where we will involve what we call regional coordinators uh, for the uh, initiative, where we have people from the Americas region, from Africa, from the European region, Middle East, and Asia, all getting together to start planning and activating the networks. And throughout the, the coming months, we will then um, contact people and to organize this. We have a very um, broad network working in the countries, but also we count on the collaboration uh, of uh, interested people that may want to join in, in this effort. Thank you. Another question for you. Uh, how are you financing your campaign? Uh, we are, uh, at the moment, we are uh, fundraising. We managed to secure some uh, funds from some donors, uh, foundations, and, 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 but we are in the process, still in the process of fundraising. But we, we, we think that we, we can now securely move to the implementation phase of the campaign. Excellent. Well, I, uh, I, I think we've uh, gotten through uh, most of the questions. There, there are a lot of comments from around the world uh, that uh, just thank uh, the organizers and the speakers uh, for this program that have a lot of really great things to say. Uh, about uh, this World Congress, and I want to thank the the speakers that are still on board, um, as well as uh, the organizers for this program. Um, does uh, either Liam or Gio Paulo do you anything else you want to say here to close the program? No, except um, I think to congratulate um, everybody for raising the public profile of this. This is, um, Ron first came to see me when I was Chief Medical Officer in the UK, and just talking about the UK side, uh, this has just gone from strength to strength, and looking at North America and, and globally, 
um, it isn't just a scientific and technical subject anymore. It's been put onto the agenda of the major public health priorities in the world, and that wasn't the case uh, two or three years ago. So congratulations to everybody for a fantastic bit of um, uh, profile raising and giving us uh, those who are in policy-making positions some real practical steps that we can take. Well said. Joe Apollo? Thank you all, uh, the organizers and the audience, for um, listening to us and for giving us the opportunity to, to participate. Thank you. Excellent. Well, everybody have a good evening or morning or whatever time of day it may be where you are. And uh, we're going to close the program. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who made this possible especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with the session The Challenges of Sepsis Management in Low- and Middle-Income Settings on December 2nd. I hope you will be back for that.